up near my gut at least. I didn't do very good anyway. Heaven. I, want to, I want to keep my eyes focused on the big picture. And Scripture reminds me that I am to have my mind set on things that are above and not things that are below. But Jesus opened the door to heaven, but there's still a path that we must follow before we arrive. And so we want the big picture, but we still got to walk through the trees. And so this path is made up of many stops and starts. It's made up of many hills and valleys. It's made up of many triumphs and tragedies, many faces and spaces. And each of them contributes in some way to this big picture of our lives. And so, as believers in Christ, we are part of a big picture. We are part of century-old big picture. And so it includes many little stories. And each of those, with the, with the opportunity to glorify God, to grow, and to minister to others. And so, in the process of developing this larger story in First Kings, this story of of God against the false gods of the world, the story of a number of, of, of smaller incidents occur, and each of those has its own message that contributes to this bigger picture. In other words, there is a big picture in the main plot of the story, but there are also these smaller stories that we don't want to lose sight of because each of those has their own lesson. I, Google failed me because I tried to find, in my mind, I, I was remembering what I had seen. Like You see a picture... And so from a distance, you see this, this full dimension picture. But as you, if you step closer to it, you notice that the picture is made up of separate, smaller images. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. In my mind, it's very clear. But so you have these, these different pictures coming together to make this one big picture. And usually you see it in a pencil drawing. It's fascinating how artists can do that. And so they'll take something that seems to be completely unrelated... And as they put it on a canvas, it, it comes together to, to make this completely different, united picture, this image. And so, uh, to me, that's fascinating. And so, I, as you move closer in, you notice the big image is made up of these smaller images. And that's where we're going right now. We're in First Kings, chapter 18, in this record of how God called this man Elijah to be a prophet at a time when the most wicked king... Scripture tells us this, the most wicked king to have ever been on the throne of Israel was running amok. And so you've got King Ahab, and he married Jezebel. And most of us have grew up hearing the story about Jezebel and Ahab. And Jezebel's daddy was king to a, a neighboring people. And Ahab's thirst for power, coupled with his wife having grown up in this idolatrous uh, way of life, you know, her, her idol worshiping, it created this formula for a toxic environment, this explosion that's happening in, in Israel here, and it inevitably is going to lead to this epic confrontation between the God of creation and the false gods of Ahab. And anything or anyone that we place our trust in other than God is totally inadequate. And so God has put a cork in the rain supply in this region here for three years, dried it up for three years, and extended drought will lead to famine. And so Elijah goes through this time of, of warning and declaration 
as God pronounces judgment on these people. And then we saw the prophet. God moves the prophet away into a seclusion by the brook Kareth. And so there he provides for the prophet. He gives him fresh water to drink. He brings food to him by the ravens. And so undoubtedly became a time for Elijah to be alone with God, to contemplate just the, the supernatural resources that God can supply. And so this time for Elijah was a time of preparation for what was to come. God had a bigger picture. And so then we saw God move him to Zarephath. So Elijah goes to Zarephath at the home of a poor widow in the heart of Ahab's country, in the heart of Jezebel's family. He sends him there. And so this became a place of proclamation, a place of testimony, a place of testing, but a place of confirmation. See, through his actions, she said, I see now that you are a man of God. And so not only did she need to see that, but Elijah needed to hear that. Okay, God is with me. And all of this, we're still walking side by side. So God seems to always be at work to test and to train us and prepare us through times of, of, of our lives, situations in our life. And so while the forest in life might be heaven, the trees in life are people and places and choices and opportunities and experiences. The trees are life on this earth. And so we need to know the big picture. But the only way the big picture makes sense is by recognizing how it is made up of many images in our life. And so we step back and we look at that. So Elijah found out that God can supply you exactly what you need, exactly where you are. God is not limited by man. He's not limited by our choices. He's not limited by our circumstances. He's not limited by creation. So God supplied Elijah exactly what he needed, exactly where he was. God supplied the widow exactly what she needed, exactly where she was. God brought this together. So ravens drop food in the middle of nowhere, and starving widow provides food for Elijah in the middle of a famine. And life, her son, life is resurrected in the heart of so much death, so much devastation. And so Elijah's been walking through these trees. And now it's time for God to remind him of the big picture. Step back a second. We need to remember the big picture here because it's time to demonstrate the power of the true God and to face this nation with a decision, a choice, an ultimate choice that they're going to have to make. And so in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, we continue. Sometime later... Sometime later, after these events, after the, the brook Kareth, after the ravens, after the widow, after the resurrection of her son, sometime later, in the third year of the famine, the Lord told Elijah, Go, make an appearance before Ahab, so I may send rain on the surface of the ground. And notice how God says here, You go, and I will show. You go, and I will show. See, the battle does belong to the Lord, but Elijah was going to be the weapon by which God wielded his victory. And so how much of our life, I wonder, do we spend waiting on God to do something in our life, do something for us, or do something for someone else? See, that's the big picture. We, God, get her done. Get her done. Take action. Let me see results. Give me some relief. That's the big picture. And oh, how we want the sweet reward of harvest without the work of harvesting. And I've grown, I grew sunflowers when I was in, I don't know, third grade, second, third grade. That's my extent of farming. But some of you have grown up and grew up and know very well about farming. And so, you know, my understanding is when, when harvest time comes, harvest time is just when you go out and you pick the fruit and vegetables and you take them inside and you arrange them in nice little neat bowls, right, for, for decoration. And then you sit back and 
and you enjoy that, right? And that what it's just that simple, isn't it? Harvesting? No, you know it's not. There's work to be done at harvesting. Harvesting is where the real work takes place. There's work to be done. And God is about ready to bring this three-year season of planning to harvest. And God has been planning new attitudes. He's been planning new outlooks. He's been planning new ways of thinking. He's been planning all of this in the hearts of the people. And it's time. It's ready for harvest. They're ready for harvest. But Elijah still has work to do. There's work even in harvest. And so don't overlook the trees. God says, you go and I'll show. But we just want Him to show, don't we? God, just give us results. You go and He'll show. So Elijah went. He went to make an appearance before Ahab. And now the famine was severe in Samaria. And if you get behind this phrase here, the famine was severe the best I can do to wrap my brain around what the intent here is you've seen those commercials, those infomercials that come on, and they show you the most famine-ravaged places in the world. And you've seen the children whose rib cages are almost bursting through their chest because they have no skin, no, 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 um, no muscle, no meat on their bones. And so they're literally skin and bones. That is the picture here. Three years, and so Elijah is, is now walking through this, coming face to face with the devastation of the choice of the people and the judgment of God. And so the famine was severe in Samaria. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who supervised the palace. Now Obadiah was a very loyal follower of the Lord. And when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them in two caves in two groups of 50. He also brought them food and water. You probably have parentheses there. This is a little uh, writer's uh, paragraph note here for us to explain and to remind us who Obadiah is. He's not the prophet Obadiah. Different times. This is what this man is known for. And so when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, he took a hundred of them and, and hit them. This man who was literally the chief of staff for King Ahab. And so Ahab told Obadiah... Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grazing areas so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the animals. And they divided up the land between them. And Ahab went one way and Obadiah went the other. So three and a half years have passed now since Elijah marched up the steps to the palace and proclaimed God's judgment on the king and on his kingdom. And so the pain and the misery within the kingdom has become more and more pressing. It's beyond critical. And Ahab was angry and he was frustrated at his failed attempts to locate Elijah. To kill Elijah. Because he blamed him. He calls him the troubler of Israel. And so no doubt in three and a half years, this stuck. So everybody, he's the troubler of Israel. Anybody seen the troubler of Israel lately? And so not only that, but Jezebel had worked her vengeance on the prophets of the Lord. All of them she could get her hands on. Killing them as if they'd been Elijah's accomplices and their death would somehow reverse what God has brought upon this land. And so you remember this is a worldview clash. So this is how their minds are thinking. The Baals, those false gods stood for domination. We dominate through strength. And so then you've got the God of Israel who commanded strength through submission. Submission to one another. Polar opposite going on here. And so Ahab is more concerned 
with saving the animals than he is with saving a starving widow in his own country. And so instead of seeking grace, Ahab was running around trying to find grass. And the big picture for both sides was strength and longevity and flourishing. That's what we're after. But it's in the trees where Ahab got lost. He lost his way. And yet somehow this man Obadiah stayed on track. Can you imagine Elijah? Imagine Elijah. Three and a half years now, he's been hid away. He's been moved around. He's been waiting, wondering, what's next, Lord? What do you have planned for me? Now I'm going to try to slip on his sandals a little bit. Scripture doesn't give us these details, but I'm trying to imagine... If I was in his position, I'd have a hard time not thinking, okay, God, you chose me. You gave me this authority to pronounce judgment on wicked Ahab. Out of all these people, you chose me. You rescued me. You tucked me safely away. You provided for me. Then you led me from this place of flourishing to a place of famine. And yet you still provided for me. And now you're sending me to deal with wicked King Ahab. Why? Why me? Is it because I'm special? And I don't get that attitude at all from Elijah. Is it because I have it all together? Is it because I'm the best equipped? Now, Elijah knew who was providing for him. He knew that God was in control. So here's the thing. Hmm. Maybe God's sending me to do this because I'm all he's got. I'm it. I mean, I look around and... And where do I see anybody else worshiping God? Where do I see anybody else like me? Where do I see anybody else who's trying to do the right thing? I'm all he's got. I'm the hope for all humanity in a hopeless world. I'm a man on an island. I'm the, the last righteous voice in this sin-stained world. If it is to be, it's up to me. I don't know. You know who God's favorite people are? Who are God's favorite people? Who would you say God's favorite people are? You, me, us, them. Who are God's favorite people? Maybe it's easier to say who they're not. Elijah, look up. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see, there is a devout follower of God tucked away in the most unlikely place. The chief of staff for King Ahab is remembered in Scripture as a loyal follower of God. I thought he was a Democrat. No, I think he's a Republican. Yeah, he's too liberal, way too conservative. Dude puts the toilet paper roll on the wrong way. See, too many trees. There are too many trees. God's bigger picture. He's got a disciple one heartbeat away from this wicked king. And believers who didn't know otherwise might have assumed Obadiah, Obadiah agreed with everything that Ahab did. Well, he's in, the, he's in there with him. He'd just like him. After all, Ahab thought he was in control. Yet the Lord in His providence in His righteous providence, arranged for the care of His servant Elijah within the household of a widow from Jezebel's hometown. And this God has now arranged for the protection of some 100 prophets 
by the hand of the man who runs Jezebel's household. Not everyone who looks like me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of our Father who is in heaven. And as Obadiah was traveling along, Elijah met him. And when he recognized him, he fell face down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my master Elijah? And he replied, Yes. Go and say to your master, Elijah is back. And Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you're ready to hand your servant over to Ahab for execution? As certainly as the Lord your God lives, my master has sent to every nation and kingdom in an effort to find you. And when they say he's not here, he makes them swear an oath that you're not there. That they could not find you. And now you say, go. Go and say to your master, Elijah's back. But when I leave you, the Lord's Spirit will carry you away so I can't find you. And if I go tell Ahab that I've seen you, he won't be able to find you. And he will kill me. And that would not be fair. wouldn't be fair. Because your servant has been a loyal follower of the Lord from my youth. So certainly my master is aware of what I did when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets. I hid 100 of the Lord's prophets in two caves and two groups of 50 and I brought them food and water. And now you say, go and say to your master, Elijah is back. But he will kill me. See, Obadiah had maintained this lifestyle despite the fact that he lived day by day Every morning he got up, put on his sandals and his robe, knowing he was walking up the steps to the most wicked king who ever lived. And yet Obadiah lived faithful to God. He worked day by day on a wicked king's national program. And Obadiah was like Daniel who had this high position in government, appointed there, made his way up to there. But unlike Daniel, because... Obadiah had to work for a regime in a country that once served God, but now was under the curse for not serving God. He was working under the curse of God's own people. And for whatever isolation Elijah might have felt that he was trapped in, this man Obadiah just one-upped him. He is one-upped him. So the most impressive thing about this, of course, was that Obadiah maintained his godliness in all of this in a time of decline. When the world was going to hell in a handbasket, this man kept his eyes set on the big picture. And this is in succession of wicked kings of whom Ahab was most wicked at anti-God. This flood of unbelief and idolatry sweeping across the country. Everything that was godly and every public remembrance of God being wiped away. And yet Obadiah had retained this fear of God as he stood before Elijah stood before the prophet and he did so as one committed to doing only what would honor God. It's really hard to believe that Ahab was unaware of what Obadiah had been doing, his allegiance to God. I don't know how he could hide that, especially from someone like Ahab living right under his nose. Yet even as Ahab was ordering these prophets, agreeing to the prophets that Jezebel had killed, he kept Obadiah alive. Obadiah was untouched. 
And somehow, clearly, Ahab saw the wisdom of keeping this man of God in authority, this man who had some scruples about him, managing his own household and even sending him out on the road, trusting him in a time of wickedness. Even Ahab recognized someone essentially honest, someone of integrity. So here he'd found one who would not be bribed, someone who would not use the power that he had been given for his own gain or to help somebody else gain something or some political advantage. And we... We tend to think of compromise. The only reason that man is in that position is because he must have done something. He cheated something. You can't be honest and get to that position. You can't be honest and, and receive that blessing. You've got to do something. You've got to cut some corners. Yet Obadiah stands in line with the likes of Daniel and Nehemiah and Joseph. And Obadiah has been carrying this umbrella around, wielding it. That's all he had. Not a drop of rain. Not a bit of relief. He couldn't see anybody on the horizon. Who's coming to rescue me, God? I'm faithful to you, standing here in the middle of the most wicked place on earth. And I got nothing. Not a drop. Not a drop. But he had his umbrella. He had his faith. Trusting in God no matter what comes. And rain is coming. Rain is coming. Relief is coming. But first, you go, and I will show. You tell Ahab, Elijah's back in town. Sorry, what? <laughs> Could you speak into my good ear? Because I think I just heard you tell me to go tell Ahab that you're back in town. So after all Obadiah had been through, after all he had endured, climbing to this position while maintaining his integrity, his allegiance to God, after having used his position to rescue these prophets of God, is he just to die like this? Is this it? Could be. But God. You know, the Apostle Paul was asked time and time again to put his life on the line for God's kingdom. What hill is he going to die on for God? And he wrote a letter to some Christians. We know that letter as Philippians. And as he wrote to them, he expressed the place where he had come to know, the place where he was now living. Paul knew what the forest looked like and he had walked through the trees. And he says in chapter 1 and verse 21, For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. And Paul saw the forest, how each day, each opportunity that God brought into his life was part of God's bigger picture. It was part of God's plan. So how could he see the forest that's made up of so many trees? Because he was looking by faith. And he saw that each one of those trees contributed in some way. To live is to live for Christ, and to die is to realize the rewards, the rewards of the harvest. Faithful life. But Elijah said, As certainly as the Lord who rules over all lives, whom I serve, I will make an appearance before him today. And when Obadiah went and informed Ahab, the king went to meet Elijah. See, faithfulness to God will inevitably lead to conflict. It will inevitably lead to confrontation with those who have opposing views, of those who, who are, or believe someone else holds the world in their hands. Faithfulness is going to lead us there. But Obadiah somehow was able to not only retain his position as this chief of Ahab's kingdom here, but most importantly, he retained his faith in the God of the drought. He retained his 
faith in the God of uncertainty. He retained his faith in the God of unanswered prayers. Think Obadiah hadn't been praying for three and a half years? Yet he still believed. And true godliness is enduring in its character. It continues. It it grows. And he persistently exhibited it in times of the deepest darkness. And even now, in a moment of incredible danger, he puts God first. Submits to His Word. His Word through this prophet. You go and God will show. And He yields His very life. If needed to be, He's willing to do that. He takes that step for God's purpose to be realized. You know what Obadiah means? You know what's on the cluster of names at his mama's house? You know the little cluster of names that has you know what it means on there? His name means servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord. How about that? Oh, for grace to be such a servant. You pray with me. Father, we just come before You right now, Father, and we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves before Your great and almighty Word. Father, Your Word that You have spoken through these people that have been recorded for us. Father, we know that it's just an example of Your enduring and Your eternal Word. Father, You still speak it today that if if we will go, that You will show. If we will do what You ask us to do, You will show up in our lives. And You will show up in the lives of others. And Father, as we live each day among the trees and we get so overwhelmed as we look up and we can't see the sun from the branches that are just covering us day after day after day, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to be true. Help us, Father, to remember that You have given us this umbrella of faith in these seasons of drought. Father, help us to look to the examples of people like Obadiah who even though they were able to maintain their integrity, You still blessed them. And You blessed them where they were and You allowed them opportunities to glorify You and to be a blessing to others. And Father, may we not lose sight of that in our lives. As we look around, where is it, Father, that You have placed each of us? And what doors are You opening for us that we have yet been able to see? And Father, we pray that You will open our eyes, that we may see You working in our lives and the lives of those around us, and that we will take part in that. Father, we know there's work in the harvest. May we, Father, not wonder why now after we've planted so much seed that we're sitting back and and no food is on the table. That the ground, the ground is drying up. Father, may we understand and know that there is work in the harvest. And we must go and we must do so that we can reap Your fields. Father, I just thank You so much for the inspiration of those who have lived faithful lives around us. As we look around today and we see our brothers and our sisters who endure so much heartache, so much hardship. And we see our brothers and sisters who have achieved so much glory and so much greatness and so much success. And on both ends of these spectrums, Father, we see faithfulness and we see holiness. And we know, Father, that it does not depend on our circumstances of the world around us. It depends on the circumstances of our heart. And we pray this morning for faithful hearts. Father, help us to be an encouragement to each other and help us to remember that the person, the eyes, the face that we are looking into may very well be the very person that you have placed to do your will. 
Father, may we, be, may we be so humble to know that the reason that we stand here today before you is because of Jesus Christ, and it's through him we pray. Amen. So this morning, I wonder, where are you? Where are you in this thought about serving God? Have you been weary, thinking you're the only one, thinking it's just you? And maybe it's time to look around, because God shows us every day glimpses of how He's working in this world, in creation. You look around this auditorium, and He shows us every time we assemble together how He's working through this body, through our family, through Christians. But sin sometimes blinds us. It blinds us to that. Sin can overwhelm us so much that we can't see the forest. We can't see the big picture because we get so overwhelmed by the trees. And this morning, if sin is doing that to your life, God calls you to repent. Confess that sin. Ask His forgiveness. And He is faithful and He is true. And He will forgive. And if you are not a child of God, if you have not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, will you confess Him today as your Lord and Savior, as the Son of God, We'll lay your sins at the foot of the cross so that Christ will nail them there like He has all the ones before and begin today walking in hope of eternal life. Will you be faithful? Will you be true? God calls you today to make a choice for Him. He is the victor. The battle belongs to the Lord. But He's trying to win this struggle that's in your life. But you must submit in order for Him to claim that victory for you. Will you do it today as we stand and sing this good song? You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus. Jesus, Lamb.
Good morning again, everyone. You've noticed that I put the pail up front. I want to remind you that it's a good time for the young kids if they'd like to give to our Kids Helping Kids campaign for back-to-school supplies for the children's home up in Paragould. It's a good time to do it while I'm talking. And so feel free to have your little ones come on up. I will give you a report that the uh, young children in their generous hearts have already given over $110 in the last two weeks. And so we're very thrilled at that. And, of course, we're collecting school supplies back in the back as well. So uh, generosity starts at a young age and continues all of our life. You know, speaking of children's home, just a reminder, I notice I've got a can up here. And uh, this is Joe's can. Joe, you're ahead of schedule. Wherever you're sitting, I don't even know where Joe is at the moment, but you're ahead of schedule. Uh, this thing's almost full. It's getting kind of heavy. It's definitely a two-hand can now uh, to be able to pick it up. So I want to remind everybody, continue dropping those coins into the can. If you don't give them to your kids to put in a pail, be sure you put them in a can. And they're going to be collecting these.